Congratulations, all of you, in the graveyard session after lunch and having to go through if, uh, Philippians yet again. Um, well done for getting here. Okay. Uh, and I felt a bit. I felt a bit bad really yesterday after I really went through it yesterday afternoon or was it morning? Yeah, I, that's right, the last session, wasn't it? For those of you who have English as your second or third language, um, I'm usually pretty good contextual preaching and I never preach that way when I'm preaching in other cultures, but I sort of went for it a bit. So uh, those of you who struggled a bit with the literary terminology and the theological terminology, sorry, way of constructing letters and uh, truths about God, struggling with it a bit because of the language, my apologies, please forgive me for that. Okay. Um, and I'll try and, what was it you were praying, Kevin? Having simple hearts to know that. <laughs> That's what reminded me of it, really. So, for, just for guidance for those who are doing the um, PowerPoint, we're going to do session 2B first, and then, well done, and then session 3, okay, and we'll get through it all, I promise you. Okay, so I didn't know whether to do this uh, yesterday, following number 2, it's a section on its own, or today, pardon? It's all right, sorry, I'm a bit sick today. Okay, so uh, we, uh, I wasn't sure when to do it, but actually we all had to go out for a meal because all those tables were all waiting for it. Uh, <laughs> then I thought I would do it today. So, this little section, first of all, two examples to follow, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling you how you're, telling me how you're getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself like a son with his father. He has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what's going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He's a true brother, co-worker and fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my need. I am sending him because he has been longing to see you. And he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me, so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I'm all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you'll be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Paul's quite an emotional guy. Have you noticed that? Often we think of him as the brilliant abstract theologian. If you aren't reading the epistles properly, if that's how you think, they're full of emotion. This is family. And you know, he's saying here that 
God have mercy on me, so I wouldn't have even more sorrows than being in prison, seeing my dear friend Epaphroditus die, and dying because he brought the gift from the Philippians to me in prison so that I could live there. Full of emotion. So I'm all the more, yeah, and then I will not, so I'm all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know that you'll be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love, and with great joy, and give him the honour that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the word of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. Okay, at first sight, these verses simply describe, with emotion, Timothy and Epaphroditus going back to Philippi for different reasons. Okay, so that's superficially what it's about. But in the light of Paul's careful construction of this letter, it also builds the addressing of the situation in Philippi that concerns him. Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of how Christian leadership is intended to be, unlike the quarrelling wrong motivation in Philippi. They are examples of, have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I'm glad David Holden um, just brought that summary of the prophetic messages that are coming through. And as he said, it's needed now worldwide because of the crashing of so many prominent leaders worldwide. God is bringing out a new way of Christian leadership, which actually is not a new way. It was the original biblical way. Okay, but it's been superseded by all sorts of cultural ways. Not just Western culture. As I go to places like in Africa and India, often this big leader is also very prominent there as well. So it's not just a Western thing. It is something that has begun to characterise Christian leadership in an ungodly way. So, so Paul is using this, yeah, saying these are examples of how Christian leadership ought to be, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they're also both examples of strong partnership in the Gospels, with Gospel, which is one of Paul's themes in this letter. So for Timothy, Paul firstly stresses his selfless service for the gospel. He says, at the beginning, I referred to this whenever it was, at the beginning of the conference, that uh, yesterday morning, in chapter 1, verse 1, fellow slave, here he says he slaved with me in the gospel. Okay? That's the expression that's used. It's not just he preached the gospel occasionally, he slaved with me. We are slaves to this, not just to Jesus, but to actually preaching the gospel. And uh, and he's, he says, others serve their own interests rather than those of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a bit of a bit tough this bit because Paul's got a whole team with him, and he says, "Well, it's only Timothy. Everybody else just looks after their own interests." Actually, that's not what he's saying. He is, because, uh, you know, some of the other guys with him were certainly not. Epaphroditus most definitely wasn't. 
What he's saying is, he's returning to the fact that in Rome, people generally, and some Christians, actually are ambitious for position, whereas Timothy is not. He's not saying, well, this is all the others, it's a permitted exaggeration. Okay, and Paul often uses those. You know, some of us, exa- I get told off from Silla, by Silla for exaggerating sometimes, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a danger for all of us who get really worked up in our preaching, you know, and we say a little bit more than it is. Is anybody else like that? <laughs> and uh, so Silla tells me off from it, for it. But actually, this, Paul does do it, he often uses all, when he doesn't mean everybody in the universe looks after their own interests, but rather this is the general characteristic of the culture and Paul and Timothy is standing very separately from that. That's what he's saying. He's not criticising the rest of his team. Um, Timothy is a genuine son of Paul and therefore reflects his spiritual father's heart. We used to use the term, I haven't heard it so much recently, but I remember years ago, we used to use the term so-and-so is an apostolic delegate. In other words, the apostle can't come, so he sends somebody else. Paul, Timothy is not an apostolic delegate. He's a true son in the faith. It's a big difference. Because delegate is for task, son in the faith, or daughter in the faith, is for heart and emotion. You know, you are expressing the same heart for the people. I don't, uh, if, if, you know, obviously I can't go everywhere. Um, of course, I'm retired now, so I don't do any of this. But when I, when I, uh, when I used to, I didn't just want to send people to do a task. Rather, we wanted to produce people who had the same heart and would therefore love the churches as much as I did. Do you understand? And that's important. Um, and we can use language which actually doesn't help us sometimes. Okay. So, and Timothy had also been to Philippi, so knew the church and his concern for their welfare in a way that some of the other team members may not necessarily be. So it's not a reflection on the rest of Paul's team. Rather, it's a refle- it's a, 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 it speaks of who Timothy is. This indicates, a quote here, that Paul's comment is likely more general and hyperbolic, that's exaggerated, than specific. Its rhetorical function in this immediate context is more <coughs> to commend Timothy than to condemn others. Okay. It's likely that Paul is returning to the general problem of self-centeredness to summarise the tendency of people in Paul's and our world to be self-absorbed and unconcerned for the things of Christ. That's what he's saying. Roman and therefore Philippian culture applauded self-interest, honour and status. And that's the general character of worldly leadership in particular. Notice it's participation in the gospel. Mission and not just companionship, but genuine companionship is essential to mission. Let me say that again. It's mission, not just companionship. Sometimes we contrast getting on with the task 
and having the relationship. This is beautifully combining them both. So it is not just being a companion, just relational. It is also being intentionally missional and a good companion, which again is what we should be as we work together for the gospel. Okay. Quite when Timothy goes, will depend on what happens in Rome. Paul is not too definite about this. With Epaphroditus, as we'll see, he's sending him immediately. With Timothy, he's saying, when I know what's right, what's the best thing to do. Some commentators uh, would suggest that if it is true that Paul is trying to escape, he wants to know, or he wants to know when that will be and get Timothy out of the way first in case he goes wrong. Could well be so. The way that Paul talks about his absolute assurance of getting out, he must have something, uh, maybe a, a word from the Lord and a scheme in mind. There's nothing wrong in having a word from the Lord and then planning how to do it. And certainly Paul was determined to get away, but how it all worked out, he wasn't quite sure. So I won't send Timothy yet, but there will come a time when I do, and he'll be out of the way of any trouble. That could well be it. I wouldn't say it as definite apostolic doctrine, but I think it could well be this case. Okay. The word he says he has genuine concern. That word translated concern can be positive or negative. Um, if it's anxieties that we need to throw on the Lord, that's sort of something that negatively grips us. But the same word is used for Timothy here, and for Paul when he writes, and in addition to all my sufferings, I have the care or the concern or the anxiety for all the churches. Something that I can very easily relate to. So here it is used, anxiety is used in a positive sense. Okay, so that's Timothy. Next, Epaphroditus. I must move on quick because I've got to get... Got to get to section three in a minute. Okay, Epaphroditus would have either carried the letter back or gone a little bit shortly afterwards. And this section is excluded to, included to explain why he was sent back home and to show Epaphroditus as an example of Christ like service. He is described as a fellow soldier, one of Paul's many co workers in Philippi. Paul has great respect for him. He describes him in five different ways, five compliments to who Epaphroditus is, which you can look up uh, in verse uh, 25. And he nearly died through sickness while serving the Lord, and therefore is to be honoured and welcomed as a hero back there. Honour him, they say. Now, this is in a shame on a culture, so honour meant a lot. And Keown says of this, the senses of a request for an extra special welcome for Epaphroditus, a really great banquet with a standing ovation, toasts proposed, rewards bestowed, speeches and stories told, God glorified and the church inspired for further service in unity. I like that, don't you? That's a brilliant way of saying, I want this guy to be really honoured when he comes back. You know, toast him, rejoice in him, and so on. 
and uh, it's likely that Epaphroditus came from a pagan background and his family were devotees of the goddess Aphrodite. Come back to her in a minute. Notice that this is relevant in some cultures. They didn't bother to change pagan names to give them Christian names. They kept the same name. Um, and that's saying in some countries I work, that's a very important issue. So, he also carried a gift from the Philippian church to Paul. And the church had heard that he'd fallen sick and were very worried about him. And the genuine humanity of Paul's concern here, both for Epaphroditus and the church, but also for himself, as I said, not having more pain on, on sorrow. He's also described as their messenger. You know what the word for messenger is? It's apostolos. Their apostle. Now, all translations that I've studied for this doesn't use the word apostle, it uses the word messenger. Keo, in the commentary that I talked about, argues that that's not right. In fact, he does a digression for about 20 pages for when you've got, when you've got 500, into, 500 in, in each volume, you've got plenty of 20 pages to do a little digression. And he does a whole digression on apostles in the New Testament. And I wish I'd read it before I book, wrote my book on apostolic ministry. <laughs> but his commentary wasn't out then, so I can be excused. Because he does the best analysis of what apostolic ministry was, not limited to the Twelve, of Paul in the New Testament. Brilliant. And he argues that putting messenger, which I've heard taught amongst us as well, um, because we say, now the word apostle means something else here, he says, that why should we pick that one out and say that is totally different from all the other references to apostles? And uh, he argues that uh, because apostolic ministry was far wider, that uh, he said we should also translate this apostle as well. Um, he says he sh should be seen as a commissioned missionary or apostle of the Philippian church, and goes on to add, and this was his definition of apostolic ministry, which I think I think is up there. Okay, I can't remember which quotes I put up and which I mean. Says this, and this is one of the best things again I've written. I wish I wish I could have quoted this bit in my book on apostolic ministry as well. The apostles then were suitably gifted, spiritually empowered church-appointed and spirit-called leader, missionaries, who led the preaching of the gospel proactively and apologetically, that means not apologising for it, but giving all the biblical truth, in ethical witness, who established ministries, planted churches, discipled believers, ensured the care of the poor and marginalised as they went, prayed for the sick and needy with signs and wonders, and equipped other Christians to be soldiers for Christ, and experience suffering for Christ. Not bad definition, is it? Of what apostolic ministry is meant to be. And he even argues that people say it was simply that he was carrying the gift, so he was a messenger. He says apostolic ministry is so concerned for the proper financing of ministry and care for the poor that that actually was an appropriate thing for somebody with an apostolic ministry to do. 
And so uh, that was, I feel, it's a correction to the way I've always understood this section, and I think it's important for us today. Epaphroditus also shared Paul's heart for the church in Philippi. He's longing for you all, stressing the need for unity again. Paul uses the, uh, yeah, I, I said the same word of himself as the care for the church in Corinthians. Being sorrowful and distressed, right emotions demonstrating Christ. The same words are used of Jesus in Gethsemane. He became greatly distressed. Paul's open expression of pain and sorrow speaks of an authentic Christianity. Christianity is not happy clappy, actually. It's actually full of all sorts of emotions. Yes, rejoicing, but also sorrowing. He says he risked his life. Now, that was an amazingly contextualised reference because Aphrodite, whom he was named after, was the uh, goddess of gambling. And whenever the soldiers who would have been would have had Paul chained to them threw the dice, which is what they did, they would always invoke the name of Aphrodite. And so he's saying, literally translated, but he wouldn't translate it this way; it wouldn't look too good. If Aphrodite gambled his life for the sake of the gospel. And very interesting, actually, in later church history, but still in the early church, the word used here for gambling his life, parabolani, were actually an order of Christians. This has got nothing to do with Philippians, it's an interesting point. (laughs) An order of Christians who would when the plagues came, would be the only ones who cared for the sick. The order of people who would go and visit the sick when the plague came, in order that those Christians weren't on their own. They gambled their lives. Which then shows something of the heart of the early church to care for all. And people deliberately giving themselves to that. As I say, it doesn't come out of Philippians, it's the same word. Okay, let's go to chapter 3. And I'll gallop through this as quickly as I dare. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out. I'm going to move from the translation here because it doesn't quite give it. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those people who do evil. Watch out for those mutilators who say you must be circumcised and be saved. But we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have had confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I even more. I am circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience for the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church 
And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I should gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I, became, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, that I've already reached perfection or maturity, but I press on to possess that perfection to which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some points, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we've already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Excuse me. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag, brag about shameful things. And they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. In this chapter, Paul changes tone. Did you notice that? It's all been full of love and affection. He's now saying, but there are some issues on which I've got to be very firm. And there are two issues that he's dealing with that could affect the church in Philippi. The first is the Judaizing teacher, teachers, who have not been a major threat to the Philippian church, unlike, say, Galatia, but whose influence is still in the church generally, despite the Council of Jerusalem decision. You know, the Council of Jerusalem made a very clear decision, but there were still people <coughs> arguing against it and trying to influence the churches. <coughs> the second danger, which comes at the end of the chapter, was the influence of the prevailing culture affecting the church, probably represented by opposition from unbelievers, who said they're destined for destruction, so that can't talk about believers. In the theology of I espouse, that would be the case. Uh, I guess many of you would feel the same. So those destined for destruction can't refer to believers, so this must be influences from, from the culture outside. And, uh, and the, the Greek-Roman world that can still influence the church. And this influence of prevailing secular culture, as we've said many times, is a major issue for the European church today. These opponents are described as enemies of the cross. Remember, the gospel of grace is not just undermined by legalism, which was his first concern, 
but a pattern of life that is contrary to the working out of gospel community. Both are threats to the gospel. Both undermine the gospel. Legalism undermines grace and allowing uh, evil influences so that our lifestyle does not fit in with the gospel is a shame to the gospel itself and undermines us. And we need to hear that in the day in which we live. Because in teaching grace, I'm not saying we don't water down grace at all, but we say grace properly understood has an effect in raising up a Christian community that demonstrate a new creation on earth. Okay. So. That's the second danger. And so in between, he gives the example of Paul himself, who, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, was seeking, is seeking to emulate the Christ pattern of humble servanthood and not seeking status. So he's used Timothy and Epaphroditus as an example of following the Christ pattern. He now uses himself as following the Christ pattern. And says, imitate me. So, he starts off, rejoice in the Lord. This keeps repeating in Philippians, and it always comes at important points in this letter. So it's uh, almost like, rejoice in the Lord, now listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. That's how it serves in this letter. Okay? Rejoicing is not fleeting happiness, but a deep inner attitude of good cheer, hope and optimism, but in the Lord and his achievements and his purposes. Now, Paul had obviously talked about this when he was in Philippi. Even though there were very few Jews in Philippi, not enough men, as I said, for a synagogue to be formed, Paul's visit would have been not long after the Jerusalem Council decision and therefore would have been taught to new converts as well as to existing churches. And he may have repeated the warning. He said, I'm going to keep repeating this. Part of leadership apostolic and in a local church is to keep people safe from wrong teaching and you do that by repeating yourself. You know, those of us who preach often, uh, sometimes, you know, I think, oh, well, I preached on that three years ago. And they won't want to hear that again. Well, I, 40% of the people in your church weren't there when you talked about three years ago, even those who were in the church at the time, because that's life today. Another 20% or more would be new people that haven't heard it. But in any case, for those who have heard it, there are certain things you need to keep teaching. I remember Terry Virgo came to do a conference on enjoying God's grace in Bedford. And we happened to be at home that weekend, so we went to the conference. So I said to him, what have you come to this for? Well, that's welcome. You know, what have you come to this conference for? You must have heard it loads of times. I said, yes, Terry. And I need to keep hearing it. Yeah. And Paul says, it's not a burden for me to keep repeating it. So if, you're, if you feel, oh, come on, I've taught this before, they need something new, teach it again. That's what Paul is saying here. Because it's safe for them. And the tone of verse 3, which I said, watch out for, watch out for, watch out for, would have come as a shock in contrast to the rest of the letter. It's a staccato repetition. 
And remember, they would have only heard this read out loud. They wouldn't have all had a copy sent by email. You know, this is Paul's latest thoughts, why don't you have a look at them, and some of you might. It wasn't like that. When the church, when the church gathered, they read these letters. People wouldn't have had a personal copy. Just like they wouldn't have had a personal copy of the scriptures. Which is why it was so important to read them together. And, um, and so the acoustic effect, therefore, was very important. And that you've got here a dramatic acoustic effect of him saying, watch out for this. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for mutilators. Stop language, isn't it? It's all been loving, loving up until now. Then whoosh! Paul's capable of both and passionate about both. Watch out for dogs. This is not in the sense of man's best friend or pampered pet. In the ancient world, they were seen as despicable scavengers. Sorry for those of you who have a dog. It's a despicable scavenger in scripture, okay? <laughs> it was an insult, a dishonouring. Gentiles were referred to by Jews as dogs. Like the Canaanite woman said in the gospel, even the dogs eat. Paul is ironically turning a Jewish insult against Judaizing teachers. This is clever rhetoric. And saying those who teach that Gentiles have to keep the Jewish law to truly belong to the people of God are uh, dogs. Paul used strong language with false teaching. He didn't use it another time. We don't, we've got to know when to use it and when not. Not if someone disagrees with you over some minor point. Oh, dog. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's not if someone just causes a little bit of trouble. No. It's when the essence of the gospel is at stake. That's when you use strong rebuke language. Otherwise, he's controlling leadership. Okay. Evil workers. It's the reliance on our good works is evil. This isn't written against Jews. It's written against Christian teachers who teach Jewish law to Gentile believers. Not anti-Semitic at all. And mutilators. A savage description of circumcision as having no spiritual value, a warning to all who put religious ritual above faith and the inner work of the Spirit. Well, then he redefines the people of God. Very important section. And very important for reaching Europe today. Because a lot of the teaching is extremely popular in Europe. And in the States. We are the circumcision, the true people of God, who worship by the Spirit. All believers, Jew and Gentile, are now the true, renewed Israel. Not replaced Israel. Sometimes people take my position, 
accused of replacement theology. I don't agree with replacement theology at all. I don't believe the church has replaced Israel. Rather, it is continuing and including historic Israel by faith. All the way through the Old Testament, this, as Paul says in Romans, not all who are in Israel are true Israelites. There's always been an Israel by faith. Understand? So this is not a um, new Israel or a replacement of Israel or a supersession, that means superseded Israel, but the continuity and extension of the remnant Israel by faith with those who accept Israel's Messiah and so we are integrated into historic Israel, but through, there's a through I left out there by mistake, <coughs> but through faith in Messiah. You understand? So the true Israel now is the continuation of the Israel by faith, which is composed now of Jew and every other ethnic group who have faith in the Messiah of Israel. We are circumcision. That's what it teaches. <laughs> and we who worship by the Spirit, it may be like in Galatia, that the false teachers taught that to receive the fullness of the Spirit, then circumcision was necessary. And Paul comes specifically against that in Galatians. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of law or by hearing by faith? Authentic Christian worship is in the Spirit and by the Spirit. No confidence in the flesh means no adherence to law so as to be confident in our own strength. We are rather confident in our standing in Christ. And being in Christ is the marker of who is in and who is out rather than adherence to the law. Being in Christ. It also means that statement, status and achievement do not make us belong. Hallelujah! Status and achievement do not make us belong. Rather, only our justification through faith in Christ. Further, one does not have to conform to, for, to an existing culture to be included in Christ. All one needs to do is sincerely believe in Jesus. Okay? This is very important missionary. Because if you go to some parts of the world or you're reaching Muslims in Europe, there can be an impression given, even though theologically you don't believe it, that you have to conform really to a Western way of doing things to be proper Christians. You hear me on that? There is no such thing in my view, as Christian culture. There is rather Christian truth expressed through the different cultures in the world. You understand? I avoid that expression. I know the word culture is used in two ways. Sometimes people say the culture of your church, meaning the things that you value. It gets a bit confusing, really. But when I'm talking about culture, I'm talking about the various cultures in the world and saying that this is Christian truth will be expressed and looked differently in the different cultures. 
And when you can build multicultural churches like we do at home, it means you are therefore accepting one another and learning how to compromise rightly on the way you do things. I hope you do that if you're building multicultural church. Otherwise you're saying that really to belong to Christ, you have to do it in an English or German or Swedish way. You hear follow me? Very important. We all have to compromise. Don't say things like, well, they're in our country, they need to do it our way. What's your that's totally non-New Testament, isn't it? Accept one another. As God has accepted you. We have to learn how to do that. It's hard work. But it's great to do it. In our church, uh, one of our sites, when Phil and I went there a couple of times, and on both occasions, there were six people in the band, but a different six on the two occasions. And in both cases, none of them had the same mother tongue. Yeah. So you have to find ways. How do you express it in a way that uh, enables people to be justified by faith alone? Oh dear, time's running away, but I'll get there. Okay. Now, historically, and I want to say this, so far as the Jews and Israel are concerned, the church, Christian church has veered historically between horrific anti-Semitism, like Martin Luther, sadly, and much of the church through history, and since the teachings of J.N. Darby in the early 19th century, Effectively, two people, two peoples of God, Israel and the Church, and both are completely wrong. Anti-Semitism is obviously wrong because we have to have love for the Jewish people, and we applaud all those who have a particular calling to reach Jews for Jesus. Okay, and we love the Jewish people. However, the teaching that somehow they get into the people of God by being Jews is false teaching. And J.N. Darby became the source of what was called the Schofield Bible, which I found as I travelled around the world, almost every language I go to has got the Schofield Bible in it, where a man called Schofield uh, took notes of John Nelson Darby's teaching he was the founder of the Exclusive Brethren, so I used to read him in the original. And uh, I was brought up, Phil and I were brought up in that. But when I started reading some of this fun stuff by Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsay, uh, I thought, oh, I read this in the original. And uh, so it, and he took notes of Darby's teaching and then put the notes, which became the same authority as the Bible itself, effectively. That's affected much of the American church, and it's affected particularly the European church. And therefore, when we're church planted, we've got to recognize that, especially as other Christians join us. Now, do it lovingly, please. Don't expect people to take all your values the very first time I hear them from you, but you didn't take the values the very first time you heard them. So, don't expect others to, but, you do have to work this one out. Otherwise, it's not 
the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope that's not too severe. Is that all right? I don't want to rock the boat too much, but it's it's important with church planting in Europe because you'll go be going against the trend of evangelicalism on this issue. Okay. And don't ever say anything that sounds like replacement theology or anti-Semitic and that sort of thing, because that's wrong as well. So Paul then started boasting. And does so with irony. There's a lot of Paul that's full of irony. And outlines what as a Jew could have been grounds for boasting. Remember that in Roman culture, which is what he's addressing, boasting was a good thing. Because of the influence of Christianity, we now think boasting is not very nice, don't we? Perhaps some of your cultures also think boasting is good. But social media, I think, thinks boasting is good. But the but but uh, boasting was considered good. So he wasn't doing a bad thing to the culture. But he's doing it with full irony. And he says. I was circumcised on exactly the right day. That's a great achievement. An eight day goal, wasn't it? To make sure I got circumcised the right day. I was a true Israelite. I came from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe of privilege. Joining with Judah, the core of the restored return after Babylon, and the tribe of Israel's first king. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Probably combines the fact that he was a Hebrew-speaking Jew rather than a Greek-speaking Jew who could be discriminated against, see Acts 6. A Pharisee, a very honoured role and meticulous about the law. As far as zeal's concerned, a persecutor. That's a passionate commitment. The word pursuing is later used by Paul in a positive sense, pursuing the true goal. Because the word he used for zeal was or whether he used for persecutor was a pursuer. Followed the law blamelessly. He was faithful to the system of what he believed. There's no Luther-like struggle here. Despite some interpretations of Romans 7. This is, no, he was, he was like the Pharisee in the temple. Oh, thank God I'm not like other men. I've done all these things. And... So Paul says, all this is loss and filth. All this pe- impressive pedigree is loss, an accounting term. But these things that Paul once thought so valuable now have no value to him in relation to the utter superiority of knowing Christ. Because of Christ, includes what Christ has done on the cross, but also in taking the initiative for Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul is not focusing on his initiative, but on Christ. Whatever one's heritage, whatever one's achievements, gains nothing for salvation and integration into God's people. The issues are stayed here. And we need to say, what would be the equivalent today that we would take pride in? Your denomination? 
I'm a reform theologian of reform theology. Or practice or education or even the fact the English language superiority as a result of the influence of both England and America. We have to say that's rubbish. Okay? Why I love speaking through interpreters. Which I had some. I almost wish it would take twice as long for me to the idea. I almost wish, you know, just for the sake of proving a point, we had one of you translating here up beside me. Because I love it. Honouring language. Oh dear. And knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and the word for knowing there is personal, intimate knowledge, speaking of the privilege that belong to Him and His people. Do we still value that above? any achievement, even as believers. He says, I counted them as rubbish. This is a vulgar term that our translations don't dare translate. Okay? They use rubbish or garbage. They're not enough to convey the crudity of the Greek. The, the, the sort of highest authority dictionary of the Bauer Arndt Dictionary of Greek, New Testament Greek says it's all crap. <laughs> okay, that's the translation it uses. And if you speak another language, put the equivalent of yours. Okay, that's what it means. It was really, you know, it was a disgusting term. Okay. Repudiate the Judaizers, and by implication, do not return to Judaism, which is, rejects Jesus as Messiah. Do not abandon the gospel of grace. Do not render the cross redundant. Oh dear. Okay. I'm not going to be able to finish this. And you've been listening a good hour. No, just a minute. So. I don't know what I'll do, really. I've <laughs> <laughs> been talking for 51 minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> so, um, the other headings were, I'll just give you those. Paul had a new threefold ambition. To know, not knowing in the sense of knowing facts, Christ, experience the power of his resurrection, despite life being a struggle, and fellowship of his sufferings. Those are his three ambitions. And once taught on apostolic foundations in Pakistan, and I went through all my teachings. And at the end, the Pakistani brother came to me and said, that was very helpful, he said, but you never mentioned suffering. You ineffective Western preacher. <laughs> I went and studied the New Testament and how as a foundation to every church Paul taught on suffering. And I've always added that in my book, in the foundations, you get suffering as well. Okay, so that's 
that's covered about what another page pressing on to the prize Paul has both confidence in his salvation because God is at work in him but doesn't take his inheritance for granted that has to be we are assured of our eternal salvation yet we heed the warnings about giving up you understand that's the balanced theology I, I, I believe in assurance of salvation but I have to give justice to scriptures that also teach, watch out, you simply stand, watch out, lest you fall, beat your body, lest I give up. We must teach those equally passionately, as if eternal salvation wasn't there, yet eternal salvation is there. And that's the balance you have to get. You understand? The problem with systematic theology is that it makes it either this or that instead of both and, which is often the biblical witness. Okay, so that was another page. <laughs> and then the pagan enemies, the influence of the culture. Well, I think we probably, these are these people from, Ro from Roman and Greek culture that are trying to influence the called enemies of the cross, where God is their stomachs, materialism, personal satisfaction, and actually worship. Fairly familiar, isn't it? Ignoring and shameful things that are pretty familiar in modern day Europe. But these people are to live as citizens of the heavenly realm. Okay. Now let me just give you the points to ponder. We've gone through two pages in three minutes. Now, points to ponder. Number one. I can't remember whether to put these on or not. What are the biggest risks for planting churches in Europe? Is it legalism, stroke and overemphasis on Israel, or is it the influence of secular culture, or both? Point to ponder. Okay, can you ponder that? This is the risk. How do we see reward? And I've, I've skipped over this really. Is it first eternal with that as our vision, or is it primarily results now? I would say your reward is eternal in the heavens. You praise God for rewards now. That has to be the order. Okay? Otherwise, when everything goes wrong, and the churches you plant and fail or get wiped out by war what are you going to do? Thirdly do we have leaders of the character of Timothy and Epaphroditus for our European church planting? Because that's what we should be making leaders of heart not just of task and fourthly how do we engage millennials and Gen Z in this and motivate them whilst recognising the validity of their concerns with the some of the way church has been demonstrated. Okay, points to ponder. I hope that's all right, and I just feel, I'm sorry, I've got that five minutes over. Please forgive me. I just felt it was like the Holy Spirit when we sang that verse, 
and be thou my vision. Because it just fitted exactly what I've been teaching. And unless you read Philippians 3 before you came. Once. Once, you haven't wanted once. Okay, that's good. But the, let's just sing that verse again. Just that verse, okay? Let's stand together.